Well, hey, good morning, good afternoon. Welcome to Safe Haven Online. This is going to kind of be an awkward one, and the reason being is because I'm talking straight to the camera in an empty room. We forgot to hit the record button this past Sunday on the message, and so this is kind of a tape-delayed service, and we'll just re-preach the message because I do want to be um, mindful of all you guys who are watching online and are encouraged by you. Hope that you're encouraged by the text as we continue to journey through the book of Revelation. So we're going to do just that. We're going to jump straight in. Love you guys. Again, maybe awkward. We'll probably pop back and forth quite a bit with... Um, you know, some overlays and stuff like that to make it a little less awkward. Um, but nonetheless, glad that you're here watching Revelation. Uh, we're continuing through chapter 2 and chapter 3 in our ongoing journey through the book of Revelation. And so uh, just maybe as a segue to get started, we all know what that feeling is like to get a report card. Um, or maybe even a job evaluation. Maybe that's something that's more applicable to your situation. But you know, that, that anxiety that comes with knowing that one of those two things is about to occur. And the reason an anxiety, and it's a necessary anxiety, the reason it pops up is because we know that the report is going to expose both the areas that we're slacking in and also the areas that we are excelling in. And that's what the evaluation is for. It reports back to us where we're being prosperous and then where we um, have neglected our job or responsibility, something like that. And so again, we feel the weight of that. And the reason I say that that's a good introduction is because in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation, that is exactly what occurs. Seven letters uh, to seven churches. And these were very, very real churches. And so what happens is, is God gave this message to John through an angel, through Jesus, all of those things that we talked about last week, to give an evaluation to these seven churches of where they are achieving and where they are waning, where they're doing the great things and where they're struggling. And so I think what we'll see to us as we go through this is that the question still remains. The question to them was, how are you evaluated as a church? And in, in, in looking at that, it, it will cause us to ask that of ourselves. How are we in light of them? How, how are we evaluated? So that'll make more sense as we go along. Um, but that is the question I'll just begin the service with. If Christ was to send you a letter, an evaluation, what would it say of your Christian journey, of, of your spiritual life, of your walk in the gospel, what would it say? How would he evaluate you? Where would you be slacking? Where would you be praised? And maybe that will guide us into this time. So just as a reminder, these again were seven very, very real churches. This is not mythical. Uh, this is not hyperbole. This is not symbolic. These were seven real churches. And m it would behoove us maybe just to start off by going through those seven churches and kind of getting a grasp on who they are. So the first one that letter is going to be written to the church at Ephesus. Now we'll call Ephesus our New York City. And the reason we'll do that is because it really was the supreme metropolis. It was uh, where all crossroads intersected, all cultures. And so they're going to receive a letter. Smyrna is going to receive a letter. We'll call this our Los Angeles. It was a very wealthy seaport area. This is the home of Homer. Uh, this is where maybe you read the Iliad or the Odyssey. This is where this comes from, very real place. Then a letter was written to Pergamum. We'll call that our Washington, D.C. The reason is because it was known for all this 
monuments and, and these temples and these things that they had, library even. Uh, they had this giant library that was only second to the library in Alexandria. Uh, and Alexandria didn't want them to have the greatest library, so they quit shipping stuff over there, which is interesting because in Pergamum is where they invented parchment to where they could create their own library. And so the word parchment literally means from Pergamum. Just interesting. Thyatira. They're going to receive a letter. We'll call this our Detroit. It was the blue-collar people. Uh, this is the people that works in factories and plants and industries and all of that. They receive a letter. They were known for their wools and fabric. And we'll remember in Acts chapter 16, Paul uh, speaks with a lady named Lydia. Lydia in Acts chapter 16 is said from have being from Thyatira. She was a seller of purple goods. And so that kind of gives you an idea of what Thyatira is all about. Uh, then there was Sardis. Sardis receives a letter, and we're going to call that our Colorado Springs because it was known as an impenetrable military site. And we know in Colorado Springs that NORAD exists inside the Shahan Mountain. And one day, if a war ever happens and somebody hits the crazy button, then I assume the top will pop off and then we'll see all that really is inside of that mountain. Uh, but nonetheless, that's what Sardis was. Then uh, Philadelphia. Now, we're not going to use Philadelphia as the city comparable to Philadelphia because it would be more like our Napa Valley. The reason I say that is because Philadelphia was known for its vineyards, its winemaking, and its earthquakes, along with brotherly love. And so there's a whole other story behind brotherly love that we won't get into. Uh, but nonetheless, Philadelphia receives a letter. And then finally, Laodicea is going to receive a letter. And so this is the seventh church. And this is a lot like our Fort Lauderdale. It was self-sustaining wealth, powerful banks, made their own medicines, were known for an eye salve that they produced. And they were so wealthy that when the earthquake happened, and I think it was AD 16 or 17, they refused help from the emperor who offered to help rebuild their city. And they refused that help. And the reason was, was because they said, we have enough money on our own to rebuild it. And so that kind of gives you an idea. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and maybe some cities that kind of give you an image of what they would be comparable to in our day. So now let's kind of dive into the letters that were sent to them. And you can track along, and I encourage you to, please track along in Revelation 2-3 as we go through this to make sure that I'm lining up with Scripture and teaching what is in alignment with Scripture because that's all we want. We just want to let the Scripture speak and then we can see what we see out of it. So with that said, let's dive in. So the first letter was to the church at Ephesus. And each letter is going to have a praise, a failure, a call to repent, and a reward in different varying shapes and fashions. And so that's what we want to do when we look at this. So Ephesus receives a praise from the Lord. And here was its praise, that its deeds, its labor, its endurance, and its rejection of false teachers was a good thing. So on the surface, it looks like Ephesus is going to receive an A on their report card and their evaluation. But then we see this failure. And so the failure was this. The failure was Ephesus had abandoned its first love. Now, I don't think that that means that it had abandoned its love for Christ. And the reason I don't think that is because he's just praised them for their deeds, their labor, their endurance, their rejection of false teachers. But what I do think this means is that their failure was marked by their failure to love one another inside the church 
body, inside the church group, and that they had been marked by that as their marker, their first love, when the church was first formed. We see that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, also Acts chapter 20, verse 35. But in Ephesians 1, where Paul writes them a letter, he says to them, I, Paul, am stirred towards affection towards the Lord just because I've heard about the way that you love one another. And that is what a church body should be marked by. Um, and, and they had failed in this. They had left that aroma. It used to be the aroma that they were known by, and they had let that aroma wane, even though they continued on in their faith journey. And so this was a failure that they had. And so what uh, Jesus says is, because of this, I'm going to call you to repent. He loves love for one another so much that not doing so is a cause to repent. In this call to repent, he said this, So remember, go back and do what you did at first, namely for them to be marked by loving one another well. And he said, here's the reward. And the gospel moment is this, is if we do that, maybe that's something you struggle with. If you've abandoned that first love, the call in the gospel is, well, go back. Go back, remember, and do what you did it first, and the reward was, if you do this, you'll be able to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. So in other words, the life-giving love that you give to one another is corollary to the return back to you, the life-giving love that the Father gives to us. So yes, we're saved and redeemed through the gospel and the gospel alone, but that should be marked by brotherly love. And so that was the letter to Ephesus. The second letter was, as we continue through Revelation 2 and 3, is a letter to Smyrna. Now Smyrna is going to be praised for standing firm despite the Jewish community's constant slander of them. There was a large Jewish population around them, and they were constantly belittling the Smyrnians, if you will and berating them for their belief in Christ as the Messiah. And it was perpetual. It was over and over. It was constant and consistent. And so the praise that they received was, even though that's going on around you, you're still standing firm, and that is praiseworthy. And the failure that they received, interestingly, this is one of two that we're going to see in the letters to the seven churches, is there was no failure mentioned by the Lord to the church at Smyrna. So he gives them then a call to repent. So the question would be, why would the Lord give them a call to repent if they didn't fail of anything and just had been praised for standing firm uh, despite the fact that the Jews were constantly blasting them? Well, I'll say this. I think a lot of times our notion of repentance is one-sided when repentance really is a two-sided coin. There is an aspect of repentance that most of us think about being that we repent, we confess, we, we turn away from sin that we're committing. And so if you grew up in churches like I did, that was largely marked by tears or maybe coming to an altar to pray or confessing your sin out loud to the body or something like that. And that's what we deemed repentance, which is true, but it's only one side of the two-sided coin of repentance. Repentance is turning from our sin, which the Smyrnians had nothing to do in, in, in this context anyway, but they still turned to God, which is the other side of repentance. So repentance is turning from sin, but turning to God. Now that we all can do 
in any time, any day, at any point, even when we got our proverbial stuff together. And so what he says is this. Here's your praise. I'm not going to mention any failure, but I do want you to turn to me without fear because you are about to suffer greatly. In other words, I love you enough to tell you that I'm about to crank up the thermostat on the suffering that you're going to receive. Now, now that we would think, man, that's not really uh, a cool thing, Lord, right? I mean, um, you're praising them. They're, they're not failing. Surely you would just bless them. But this is just a reminder that God is sovereign even over suffering. And sometimes when we think we should be receiving a blessing because maybe we're pursuing the Lord or, or um, we're, we're working for Him, laboring for Him, maybe it's a heightened sense of awareness of, I'm doing a lot for the Lord. And maybe we think because of that we should actually earn something. God's still sovereign over those moments when we're pursuing the Lord and suffering is still occurring. And so this was the letter to Smyrna. In your evaluation, you're doing well. But I want you to keep doing well and know that it's just going to get harder. And that's okay. I love you enough to tell you that. And so here's the reward. If you do this, then you'll receive the crown of life and never be hurt by the second death. In other words, the heat that you'll receive and the suffering that you receive will only be temporary. So this was the letter to the Smyrnians. The third letter that's written in Revelation 2 through 3 is the letter to Pergamum. Pergamum gets a praise, and its praise was this. You've never denied your faith despite vile pagan practices and heightened academia that surrounds you. In other words, you keep on keeping your eyes down even though you live and labor in the middle of Bourbon Street. Now, maybe an example of that would be somebody who literally lived in Bourbon Street and have all these things to look at. Well, the praise for the Pergamumians was that even though they lived amongst all this stuff, they kept their head down and they labored and they labored faithfully for the Lord. So this was their praise. But their failure was this, that even though that marked the entire church, there were some who had embraced as normative the accepting of food offered to idols and sexual immorality. Now, we don't know exactly what that all entailed, but in other words, they had incorporated some things that were just seen as normative. Maybe I could paint the picture this way. Again, they all were marked by living on Bourbon Street, but by keeping their head down, faithfully plotting for the Lord, even though chaos was around them, which many of you, I'm sure, can identify with. But they didn't look up and say, oh, I want that and take it in. What they did was something came in from the side and they just kind of embraced it as normative as a, as a part of their normal Christian life. And a great example of that that I used in the sermon this Sunday was the number one song on the Billboard charts right now is by Cardi B. And that song is WAP. Now again, I don't want to say what that even means um, in our sanctuary just because it's so vile. And so look it up. Go, go see what I'm talking about. And, and here's the thing. Many church members have just kind of, again, not looked at the song and, and said, yeah, that's gross, but I'm going to take it into my Christian life. 
what's happening is they'll let it play. They'll let their kids listen to it. They'll dance along with the dance that's on TikTok or whatever. And though they're trying to pursue the Lord, it's just kind of culture has allowed that to slip in as normative and okay. And so it's not that anybody who would, would say, yeah, that's an acceptable song to listen to. The problem is, is that, that people just kind of wink and nod at it, giggle at it. Oh, it's just a cultural thing, Troy. We listen to the beat, uh, whatever. The reason I say that is because to be the number one song, somebody's listening to it. A lot of somebodies are listening to it. And so it's that. It's, it's the embracing of the worldly dress, embracing of the worldly talk. It's, it's trying to pursue the Lord, but what is it that you wink and nod at? as normative and let that just kind of slip in and that is the failure that the Lord points out in them that they've allowed something like this to occur. And so what does He do? He calls them to repent. And it's so offensive to the Lord when we allow normative things to just kind of slip in into our own Christian walk. This, if you don't repent, I will personally come and war against you on my own. And so the truth behind this is when things are offensive to Christ, He does indeed go on the defensive. And so what I'm saying is this, sin is not something to just wink and nod at. This teaches us this. And so he writes this to the Pergamums and he says, gotta know this. And he says, if you turn, now here's the reward again. We all know in our Christian walk, we're all prone to allow things to slip in. But the moment we identify Him is the moment that the Lord offers us a return. Come back to me. And He says, if you do, then I'll give you hidden manna and a white stone with a new name on it. In other words, when you turn away from that, number one, turn away from that or I will go on the defensive against you. But when you do return, the beauty of the gospel is, is that I'll give you fresh nutrients, fresh freedom, fresh life, fresh start, and even I'll give you a fresh new white stone name. It's the beauty of the gospel. But it's also the call of the gospel to be serious about sin. That the letter to the Pergamums. The fourth letter was to the Thyatirians. And so its praise that they received was this, that their latest works... The works now had exceeded its first works, its works back when it first became Christians. Its latest works have exceeded its first works in growing in faith and love. In other words, they were better today than they were yesterday. And what a glorious thing for the Lord to say of us that we've grown more today than we were yesterday. So its praise was that. And here's its failure, though. Its failure was that it tolerated a false prophetess. So not only embraced something as normative, but embraced someone inside the church body as normative and acceptable. It tolerated a false prophetess who had led some astray to sexual sin. In other words, their punishment or their failure was indeed this that they as a church did not practice church discipline. So church discipline is this meaningful to the Lord, that if it's not practiced, if, 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 if someone is known to be a false teacher, a false prophetess, um, or a false prophet, something like that, if, if we're too afraid to confront them because it doesn't seem loving to confront them, or if we're too afraid to confront them because 
well, it'll just kind of make it a little bit awkward in the church gathering. Uh, whatever that is, whatever our reasoning it is, tolerating that is offensive to the Lord. The Lord holds a, a near and dear purity to His bride and, and cares about that in the church, so much so that this was written in their evaluation, that they accepted that. And so the call was a call to repent or, and this is a pretty powerful statement, he says, if you don't repent and write this, cast the false prophetess out and her false teaching, I will make you sick and I'll send tribulation and I'll even strike your children dead. So in other words, sin in the church is not a joke. But also embracing sinful people as normative who have expressed themselves in false teaching, teaching or, or false uh, teachers is something that's very offensive to the Lord. And I, even as I say that, I want to be careful. Because in my own heart right now, I can, I can feel myself fighting. But we're all sinners. Yes, we are all sinners. Uh, but we all are prone to wayward thoughts. Yes, we're all prone to wayward thoughts. But the gospel redeems that. Yes, the gospel redeems that. But this paints a picture of someone who is known as a false teacher and false prophetess allowed to reside in the church knowing that they've publicly expressed themselves as this false belief. That's a whole nother level. And so this is a big, big deal to the Lord. And so with that, he says, if you do turn, again, the gospel call, then I'll give you authority over nations and I'll give you, um, or I'll give him the morning star. In other words, if, if you're bold enough to lead out in the purity of your own church, then I will make you leaders in the world for kingdom work. I'll give you a platform. I'll give you a microphone to continue leading out in gospel ministry because I see that you truly value gospel ministry. So more on that later as we do the recap, but that was the letter to Thyatira. And then the fifth letter to the people of Sardis. Their praise was none. Now that should right off the bat make them read this letter and go, oh boy, we have definitely received an F. Um, and this is going to be one of two, but they, they, they got to know they're in trouble after receiving no praise. But here's their failure. Their failure was that they appeared to be alive, but were dead. And their works were detestable in the sight of the Lord. And so how could we work for the Lord and it be detestable? How is that even possible? Well, it's, it's very possible. In other words, it is incredibly possible to look like a vibrant church. For the parking lot to be full, for everybody to be posting stuff on social media, to have great t-shirts talking about the church, to have great song services, to be doing all kind of awesome things, building hospitals, feeding the homeless, whatever, to be doing a myriad of different awesome works, but to be dead men walking, for the hearts to be rotten to the core, even though everything looks, the scoreboard is lighting it up for the church. And in other words, the Lord says there's something in that that can be detestable to me to the point of repentance. 
And he says this, he says, if this is you, if you're doing good works, but it's not for the glory of the Lord, it's for yourself or because you believe that those works will earn you favor and the gospel, it's, it's, it's not a response to the gospel, it's a response towards the gospel. In other words, I do this to, to prove my whatever, then it's all wrong. If, it, if it's not birthed out of a, I am mesmerized that you would love me enough to redeem me, and because of that, it's just a natural overflow of worship, then you need to repent. You need to wake up, he says. Wake up and keep what you've seen and heard, being the gospel, and repent. If this is you, you need to throw water on your face. You need to pinch yourself. You need to have a reality check. Are you all about Jesus? Or are you all about meeting felt needs? It's possible to meet felt needs and to look like a vibrant church and to be completely devoid of Jesus. Very possible. And I would even argue largely probable in our culture today. So he says, if you turn from this, if, if you... If you, if you Come to the gospel and the gospel alone. Have a gospel-centered mindset, then, then there'll be a reward. And the reward is white garments. And your name will not be blotted out. And I haven't figured all this out. And I don't even have a box for this really in my paradigm of theology or how it all plays out. But the implication at its base level is this. that The implication is the name can be blotted out. Christ has the authority to do that. And that's how offensive this is to the Lord. And if you turn from it, if you turn from just doing all these deeds, then you'll be spoken for by Christ. In other words, if you acknowledge me before men, then I'll acknowledge you before my Father. Not if you do a lot of good works, then I'll acknowledge you before my Father. No, no, no. It's all about Jesus. What did you do with Jesus? That being the letter to Sardis. Then number six, as we get close to the end, the letter to Philadelphia. Their praise was this. You are not nationally powerful. You're not huge. You're not, you're not big. But you've kept my word and not denied the faith. Uh, they, they were just faithful plotters. They weren't flashes in the pan who popped up and Oh, they're this awesome thing, and then flash out, or yes, I'm on fire, and pop out. They just plodded along faithfully. They were the grandmothers and the grandfathers, the widows and the widowers in the church who sat back in the corner for years and just faithfully labored, loved the Lord, served the Lord, gave their life in that way to the Lord, but were nothing big, nothing famous, not on a platform, not, not anything grandiose, not leaders of the committees, whatever. They were just faithful plotters. And the Lord says consistency is praiseworthy. Fickleness annoys me. So he then says to them, this is you, you're, you're consistent, you're not fickle. And so their failure was nothing mentioned, again. But they also had that call to repent. Again, not to turn from sin, but to turn to God in all things. So as believers, again, we repent often and always. It's a good thing. Not just when we realize our sin, but we turn to God in repentance when we acknowledge His greatness. 
this being the call, turn without fear because he will keep them from trial. So just keep on holding. In other words, I love you so much to let you know that I'm proud of you and I'm going to keep trial away from you and keep plodding along anyway. Be consistent. To which the Smyrnians had to definitely go, whoa, whoa, why didn't we get that? When you turn in the the fire up on us, but you're going to turn the fire down on them. So, but nonetheless, again, God's sovereign over what we all experience in His churches, and there's a rest in His sovereignty. And here's the reward. If you do, if you turn to me without fear, then I'll make you a pillar in the temple of God in the new Jerusalem. In other words, there's, there's some type of kingdom acknowledgement coming their way if they continue faithfully in eternity in a way that we just don't understand. Um, and I don't have a clue what this means or how this actually plays out, but it's kind of like the, the kid who, when he's faced with the choice of, do you want a hot dog for lunch or do you want filet mignon? Well, the six-year-old wants the hot dog because it loves the hot dog and the hot dog is all it has a paradigm for and it rejects the filet mignon not because it doesn't like filet mignon, it's just because it has no concept of what filet mignon is. And so this is the reward. He says, listen, if you're faithful in consistently plotting, I'm going to give you something greater than what you know now, something greater than you've ever dreamed or imagined. And when you taste it and see it for the first time, you will praise me in a whole new way. And that's what he says. Be consistent and there's a reward coming and you'll be made a pillar in the new Jerusalem. You'll experience something in a way that you've never dreamt or imagined. And so this reality that's better than now is to come for them. And then we get to the seventh and final church letter. The seventh and final church letter was to the church at Laodicea. Now this is the one that most everybody who has been around church has heard of because it's the famous, I'll vomit you out passage. So let's look at the praise. The praise that came for the church at Laodicea, as we most all know, if you, again, if you've been in church and if you haven't, that's perfectly okay. You're about to learn with us um, that there was no praise. There was nothing in them that was praiseworthy. And here's the failure. The failure was you are lukewarm. You're not hot. You're not cold. You're stuck in the middle. You're not on fire for me, and you're not completely rejecting me but you are kind of this hybrid of the two. You acknowledge me and continue to reject me in some aspects. So they were lukewarm. And the reason they were lukewarm is because they were blinded by their prosperity of all things. And so it was the old statement. In Laodicea, they bought into the fact that, well, it's, it's, it's big, and so it must be right, which is what we can buy into in our culture. When health seems to be our norm, then we go, things must be right. Or when wealth is norm, when our bank accounts are full, well, things must be right. When I'm healthy, I don't really need God because He's already blessing me in health. And when I'm wealthy, I don't really need God. It's easy to turn to God in our suffering, isn't it? When the bank account is at $81.07 and we go, Oh God, do you not see this bill that's coming up? 
I really need you. And, and we'll turn to Him in suffering, and that's the opposite. A lot of times in prosperity, we don't turn to God because we're blinded by the fact that we are prospering. Or health the exact same way. It's the exact same example. You go to the doctor, you get the, uh, the, the test, and he says, Hey, you have a cholesterol problem. And it's not just a problem. You have a serious issue. If you eat one more French fry, there's a good chance that you're a goner. Or we even get worse news than that. The scan doesn't come back right, or uh, the mass is seen, or uh, the blood disease is exposed, or whatever it is. And in that moment where we get that horrible news is when we often, in suffering, turn and go, Oh God, I, I need you. And what he says to Laodicea is, You're prosperous, and in your prosperity you have turned from me, and you're blinded from me, because this is what you value most. And so he says, there's a call to repent in this. And the call to repent was, you need to see your nakedness. In the midst of your health and wealth, you need to drop it and see your nakedness, see your emptiness apart from the Lord. To see your health and wealth and abandon it and go, no, 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 no. These things will not blind me to the fact that I need the Lord more now than ever before. I need the Lord in my prosperity more than I need Him in my uh, depravity. Or, or I need to constantly see my depravity, I guess is what we would say. It's what He says. So see your nakedness and your blindness that you cannot fix with your own medicines. And so... A healthy focus on depravity is indeed healthy, is what the Lord's saying. And I say all this to say, and maybe this one is more identifiable to us because we do live in the most prosperous nation that's ever existed. Um, but we don't want, especially in our churches, this notion that if the bank account is full, then we're all good. If uh, the, the, the health that seems to be the norm, then we're all good. We need to constantly be focused on our need. And so the reward was, if we turn in this, then Jesus says, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. So if you stay lukewarm in the middle, not hot for me, not cold against me, but stay lukewarm, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. But... If even in your prosperity you constantly are on your knees in need for me, then I will let you sit on the throne with me. Now again, I don't know what that seems to mean. I don't know if that's figurative. I don't know if that's literal. But I do know this, that we don't just let anybody sit in a seat with us, do we? I don't, I don't even let many friends sit in a seat with me. It's just kind of... Awkward, right? But you know who I do let sit in the seat with me? My family. And so what the Lord's saying is, if you will be on fire for me, even in the midst of prosperity and, and health and whatever, if you'll see your need for me, I won't count you just as a friend, but you will sit in the seat with me as family. You love me that much to constantly see the need then you can sit in my lap. That's the call. And so that's the letter to all seven churches in Revelation. 
chapter 2 and chapter 3. I know that was a lot to swallow. I'm thankful that you chewed along with me. And it, some of you may have to have hit the pause button. And, and again, it, I know it was long. It was a lot to cover. Um, but what are seven takeaways? These seven takeaways will definitely be on the screen and we'll leave it up there for an extended period that as I read through them and you can just kind of chew through. I think these are some great, great things that we can learn today from the churches. And, and I know this, the Lord is speaking to you right now in a myriad of different ways, even as we've gone through the Word, because that's what the Lord does. He honors His Word. And so I pray that the Spirit continues to speak to you and however He's speaking to you right now. But maybe as an example, as we do, could just kind of walk away some takeaways in application from the letters of the seven churches. Number one, we learn this from the church at Ephesus. Let's never hold doctrinal purity at the expense of church harmony. And let's never hold church harmony at the expense of doctrinal purity. And so we want to labor. We want to labor to love one another well. But in loving one another well, not abandoning our first love, we also don't negate standing for robust biblical truth. And also we don't hold to biblical distinctives. We always hold to biblical truth, but we always don't hold to non-essential theological stances at the sake of causing disharmony. And that's that delicate balance. In non-essentials, we have liberty, but in essentials, we have unity. And so let's hold those two well. Let's be a church who loves one another well and also loves doctrine well. So let's learn that from that church. And then number two, to the church at Smyrna, what can we take away from it? Let's embrace present suffering with the perspective of eternal life. There's that old saying that says, oh, that person's so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Well, that phrase just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's impossible to be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. It's actually the opposite. You can be so earthly minded that you're no heavenly good for sure. But if we're incredibly heavenly minded, we will never be anything but of earthly good, whether the earth loves it or rejects it, which is the call. So you may get Facebook blasts when you stand for truth, or family may reject you when you stand for truth, or you may not get invited to the co-worker party when you stand for truth, or whatever. You may get scoffed at, or indeed you may experience literal persecution, which I 100% think is coming our way in this society. But let's embrace suffering for what it really is. It's just a blip on the radar screen in light of the perspective of eternity. And so let's labor well, even in the midst of suffering, even when the heat is turned up. And then number three, the letter from Pergamum, let's learn this. Let's reject normalizing and embracing diluted non-Christian behavior as normative in our lives and in our church. Um, the, the WAP song is a great illustration, but the, the point is just simple. We're to be different. We are indeed to be different. And if experiencing freedoms of grace leaves you feel like you've been walking in mud, 
then there's a good chance you haven't been walking in freedoms of a grace, but literally just walking in sinful mud. And so with that said, number four, what do we learn from the church at Thyatira? Well, let's call a false prophet and a false prophetess and a false teaching. Let's call those things false. Let's expose them. Let's be okay with pointing out in our churches and our lives when something robustly stands against the truth of God's Word that we call it for what it is, no matter the cost. No matter if the worldly perception is that that's unloving or no matter if it's just plain awkward, no matter if we lose a friend, no matter if we lose a family member, but let's stand for true teaching. Let's let the Lord search the hearts and minds of our church and what is found faults in it, let's let it be exposed for what it is and trust God that that is right and good in His eyes. And then number five, what we learn from the church at Sardis? Well, let's go through the motions of faith for sure, but not in the flesh, always in the Spirit. Let's labor for the Lord, but not to prove that we really love the Lord, but out of our love that was given to us from the Lord. So let's, let's labor well and not be a tree branch that looks real good, like you can hang a swing on it, but all of a sudden when it's finally exposed, is rotten to the core. Let's examine that in our own lives. Let's be people of sacrifice and submission and suffering and, and serving and all of those things out of a heart reflex, not out of a forcing of our hands to prove that we anything. So let's examine why we do good works and what is the heartbeat behind it. Is it for the Lord or is it so that we can make a Facebook post? And so... Number six, from Philadelphia, let's learn this. Let's experience the blessings of Christ by indeed staying the course. Let's march. Let's labor. Let's stay the course. Let's labor unto the Lord. As we just talked about, that can be sinful, but you get what I'm saying here. Let's experience the blessings of Christ by staying the course. In other words, it's just worth it. It's worth it to continue laboring for the Lord. And so maybe there's somebody watching this that right now you're like, I just don't know. I don't know if it's worth it to continue because my spouse doesn't want to continue in the faith. I don't know if it's worth it continue to continue because I just want to dabble in my own sin. It's worth it. It is worth it to fight the labor of faith and to continue striving for the faith. We see that in this text to Philadelphia. So when you are contemplating, well, I'll just sleep in. Well, I, we'll just kind of go experience the best the world has to offer. No, 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 no. You fight. You fight to be around the people of faith, to serve with the people of faith, because that's what the Lord said is good for us. And so we fight. And then finally, seven, the Le church of the Laodiceans, the letter to the Laodiceans. Let's war for utter dependence on Christ, even in times of abundance. Let's not be people who war for dependence on Christ when we're in need, but when we're in abundance. That that really is what the alarm clock that wakes us up every single morning is. You need Christ more today than you needed Him yesterday. And so... 
the notion in our world a lot of times and largely is this. Well, you do you. As long as the bank keeps growing, then you're okay. You're okay. The, Lord, the Lord's got to be the one blessing you, which is something I actually heard just this past week. It was this gentleman that I ran into and began to talk to him, and, and he was a situation in life where he told me about his hustling skills and how great a hustler he was, and um, you know, dropped about 15 GDs in our five-minute conversation, and all kinds of F-bombs, and was just telling me about licentious living and all these things. And, and in that moment, you know, we got to laughing because it, he said, what do you do? And then I'm like, I'm a, you know, I'm a pastor, which changed the conversation real quick. And, and, and then he started laughing about my name being Pastor Troy, which I don't call myself pastor, but you know what I mean. And the rapper, Pastor Troy, and how he loved the rapper, Pastor Troy. And we got into all these conversations. And I said, well, now that you know um, that I'm a pastor, you got to know what's coming next. And he, he kind of giggled and put his head down. And I said, now we got to talk about Jesus. we got to talk about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And, and do you believe in Jesus? And, and he grabbed this Bible that somebody had given him out of his pocket um, just a, a few days before. And so he grabs it out and he says, well, this lady gave me this uh, just yesterday. And you know what? I definitely believe in Jesus because, and here was his statement, because how could I be out here hustling and getting all the things that I'm getting if Jesus wasn't the one blessing me? If we're not careful, that exact same twisted line of thought will fall into us as well. If my bank account's good, if my health is good, then God must be the one blessing me so I can go do whatever I want to do. Because He's obviously not punishing me. And now we can slip into that. Let's be real careful about that because if you'll remember, there was somebody who also offered Jesus all the blessings of the world. When Satan took Jesus on the top of the mountain, he said, if you'll just bow to me, I'll give you everything. We've got to be careful. Our blessings can blind us to our need for Jesus and distort our perception that it's actually blessings we're receiving as opposed to Satan giving us treasures and saying, yeah, 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 keep on doing what you're doing. Yes, 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 yes. You love the Lord. Don't worry about it. You don't, you don't need to repent. You don't need to call on Him. You don't need God's people. You don't need to serve Him. You just keep doing you. And that little voice sometimes will get twisted. This is, this is God speaking to you. Hold up, is that Satan? No, 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 this, this is God speaking to you. You just, you, here, look, here's you another blessing. Keep tracking the blessings. Let's be real careful, real careful about that twisted notion. So, that's it. That is our takeaway from the seven letters to the seven churches. And it's funny. It's funny how these seven letters hit all of us in different ways. And I believe today that these will lead us to a couple of things. It'll either lead us to praise the Lord and go, thank you, Lord, that you are driving me to understand the gospel in a whole new way and more than I've ever seen it before. It'll result in these letters for the believer, for the true believer, will result in praise, knowing that it is calling us to serve the Lord more. But there also is that side of it does call us also 
to purge. To praise and to purge. To purge in all these areas that we see ourselves struggling. To purge, to dump them, to get them out, to lay them before the Lord. Hearing the gospel reward in all of them. If you turn to me, then I will give you the tree of life, give you the crown, let you sit with me. I'll acknowledge you before the Father. All of these things. So even now in your car, at your house, whatever, I pray that this calls you to praise and it calls you to purge. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, this is a call for you to die to yourself. To die to a life that says it's all about the world or to even die to the notion Maybe examining your heart now is you're doing works for the Lord, you're laboring for the Lord, you're teaching the Sunday school class, you're driving the bus, you're feeding the homeless, you're whatever, but you realize for the first time that it's to prove something to the Lord. Repent of that and turn and trust in Jesus for salvation. Don't trust in your works towards sanctification or your works towards justification or your works towards glorification, but trust in Jesus today. I repent of my sin and call on you for to be my Savior, to be my all in all, to be my chief value, to be the thing that I, I, I am thankful for that you dove into the bottom of the ocean and awakened me and saved me and be enamored by that. Call on Jesus today and trust Him as Savior and Lord. And again, if you are a believer, rejoice. Rejoice in second chances. Rejoice that we can draw a line in the sand. Rejoice that we've received seven letters. And it is there to direct our path for our good and God's glory.